We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Uh, you're listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast. We're a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com. And today we have Michael Haken. Dr. Haken is professor of church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Dr. Haken is the author of, amongst a bunch of others, a book called Amidst Our Beloved Stands, Recovering Sacrament in the Baptist Tradition. And that's from Lexham Press. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, I There was a while I sort of flirted with like Anglicanism because I liked sort of their like hype on the sacraments. And I'm like, I don't, you know, people ridicule the bells and smells, right? But at the same time, there's something in humans that are sort of drawn to whatever this this thing, we're just sort of naturally drawn to it. And I I remember I would read a lot of these people and I would get jealous because they would, um, they had such a high place of the Lord's Supper. And this, this is the one-liner. They would always be, I can't wait to take the Lord's Supper this Sunday. I'm like, what? <laughs> so before I even get anywhere specific in the book, what do you think about that? What do you think about when people say, man, I can't wait to get to the Lord's Supper. And then someone like me who says, I want to feel that way, but I just don't know about that. I don't have that same excitement, but I desire to. Well, I mean, I come out of a tradition, uh, Baptist, but uh, I did all my theological education in Anglican, Evangelical Anglican Seminary, Wycliffe College at the time, in the uh, which is part of the kind of federation of colleges of the University of Toronto. So, um, you know, I'm, I kind of was nurtured, I'd become a Christian in the spring of 1974. And that fall, I, I entered the Anglican Seminary, where I was till 1982. And so it was eight years, not the entire time living in, 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 um, in residence, but you know, when I lived in residence, uh, we had morning and evening prayer uh, every day of the week, um, Monday through Friday, and then uh, communion on Wednesday afternoons. So my spirituality as a young Christian was nourished mm -hmm. by the 1662 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, this is before all the kind of alternate services came in that mm -hmm. I think in many ways have destroyed the rich theology of of the the that that really remarkable book of it's really a book of spirituality so i i very much understand you know i the idea of the of the lord's table as a high point of one's christian life mm -hmm. um and the men who framed that that book people like hugh latimer who worked with Cramner in the 1540s, late 1540s, on the production of that book. And then others at that time, like John Hooper and Nicholas Ridley. Uh, I mean, these men valued, deeply valued preaching. But they also knew that one of the means that God gives us to help us walk as Christians is the Lord's table. Mm -hmm. And um, in the kind of revivalistic tradition of Baptists in the 19th century, that just got completely lost right and we have yet to recover it yeah, okay so that brings me to the quote so so in the book you say that uh, among many of the modern baptists you said there's this wingling tradition that quote stressed primarily the memorial nature of the lord's supper 
and that has dominated Baptist thinking since the 19th century, end quote. And then you continued on saying, quote, in the previous two centuries, however, there had prevailed quite a different view, namely that was associated with John Calvin, end quote. Can you give us a little, like for this piece, sort of a little historical overview, I'm a Baptist too, of sort of where we've been and where we are now and how we got there? Yeah, so I, I take it for granted, I don't argue it in detail and the book, that <laughs> Baptists have their roots in the Puritan movement. This has been a long contested issue, goes back at least you know, 120 years to the late 19th century about Baptist origins. And there had emerged in the 19th century a view that Baptists were basically, you know, they go all the way back to the first Baptist, who's John the Baptist or Jesus. And uh, that's known as the landmark position. And it kind of emerges in the 19th century as um, both a theological position and one that's historically argued. Most Baptist historians in the 20th century really recognize that that has no historical viability or integrity. But the, the two possibilities are that Baptist roots are in the Anabaptist movement or our roots are in Puritanism. Um, for those who adopt the idea that it's in the Anabaptist movement, it's, it's not an either or. They recognize that the immediate roots of the Baptist tradition are in Puritanism, but they also want to emphasize links to the Anabaptists. Um, for me, the roots uh, lie in the Puritan tradition. And not surprisingly, that when they come out of Puritanism in the 16-teens through the 1640s, um, they retain a number of the emphases of Puritanism. And one of the emphases is that the Lord's table is a place where we have communion with the risen Christ. This is John Calvin, a classic John Calvin. Uh, the Puritans, the early Baptists probably would have gotten it not from Calvin per se, but they would have gotten it from uh, various Puritan authors uh, who they heard preaching or documents that they read, uh, for instance, a document like the Westminster Confession. Mm -hmm. So up until roughly 1800, uh, Baptists saw the Lord's table, which would be celebrated monthly, uh, pretty well always in the evening. It was uh, there are arguments. It's the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not, you know, the exegetical kind of uh, value of those sort of arguments is dubious. But be that as it may, they they would celebrate it in, in interestingly enough, in ways that we still do today. It's a monthly celebration, um, usually in the evening uh, or in the afternoon service. But the focus uh, of it would be recognized that one of the one of the things is hap what is happening at the table is if you come with faith, the bread and wine are still bread and wine. They don't change substance at all. So they reject the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view. They don't contain the body and bloody blood of Christ. But by faith, they these these symbols represent our union with Christ, a union that is experientially. Uh, realized at the table we we once again realize we are in christ we once again hear that we our sins have been forgiven uh we once again realize that we, it's not myself alone that's in christ but with brothers and sisters uh the church the the lord's table is a communal event it's it's a community event it's not something i do with my family um or you know i'm, I'm off on a hunting trip with 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 buddies and you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have the Lord's table? No, 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 no. It is, it is, 
it, it is a it's it, it's an ordinance of the local church, mm. and these are men and women with whom I have pledged in covenant to walk with them and they with me and to watch over each other's souls. Mm. Mm. Um, around eighteen hundred, this begins to change, and the reasons for it are mul- are varied. One of them is the growing stress in the late nineteenth century, late eighteenth century on the church as an evangelistic um, institution, that the church is is a place of evangelism primarily, Mm. that the preaching of the word is aimed, yes, to edify sinners, but also to save the lost. Um, But the Lord's Supper does not save. The Lord's Supper is not an evangelistic instrument per se, I mean, I know there is that statement where to, to do it until, you know, proclaiming the Lord's death yeah. till he come. But um, it, it, it's, it's an inter it's an interchurch ordinance. Yeah. It's not designed to win the lost, per se, uh, primarily. And uh, so because the church is increasingly seen as an evangelistic um, medium, um, there is a downplaying of the Lord's Supper. In addition to that, there is a rise uh, in English Baptist circles, uh, at least the larger context. There's a resurgence of Roman Catholicism. And so it strikes me that Baptists are kind of knee-jerk. It's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction over against this kind of not only Roman Catholicism, but also an Anglo-Catholicism within the Anglican Church, what's known as a kind of high high Anglicanism. And then thirdly, there is the impact of the, the, the Enlightenment, which for the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment is, is, is basically a movement that seeks to remove, in some ways, the mystery of our world. Mm. It, it, you know, when you read Jonathan, this is off to, the, off to the side, but it captures the point. When you read Jonathan Edwards in his personal narrative, which was this remarkable text that he wrote for his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., who is the father of the third vice president of the United States, the infamous Aaron Burr Jr. When he, Aaron Burr Sr. in the late 1730s asked Edwards, who is a friend to, can you tell me, tell me how, how has the Lord led you in your life? And he writes this thing called the personal narrative. And Edwards talks about going out uh, on um, times of meditation and prayer, you know, only a few minutes ride from his home in Northampton and looking at the sky and seeing the blueness of the sky, speak, which speaks in his mind of the majesty of God. And then the, the whiteness of the clouds touching each other, God's mercy and beneficence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My, I would bet that probably very few of us, when we look on nature, see it that way. Mm-hmm. What, we, what we see is, we, is primarily informed by a scientific understanding. And the whole mystery of nature, just the, the marvel of nature has been lost on us. Mm-hmm. And I think that to some degree is a product of the enlightenment. So in ways that we don't realize, we've been shaped by this enlightenment scientific model, which uh, begins to permeate Christian thinking in removing the idea of mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. I remember when I was began researching this topic, and this has been a number of years ago, reading the Unitarian Joseph Priestley, um, who is well known, you know, at least in scientific circles for being, you know, uh, the discoverer of a number of property of a number of chemical elements. Um, he's also the man who invented carbonated water. So next time you have a, a, 
a pop or a Coke or whatever. Oh, uh, you know, we can thank him. But, I'm um, addicted to that crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also was the father of Unitarianism in many, many ways in, in yes. England, in the English speaking world. He was, he was a leading apostle of this form of heterodoxy. And um, if you read, if you read uh, Joseph Priestley on the table, his understanding of the table, it, it could fit any Baptist in the late 19th, early 20th century. Hmm. Um, it's a memorial. Hmm. That's all hmm. it is. We're, we, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. So and, what? Uh, sorry? I'm just, I want to go back before the the switch, you know, like you had mentioned sort of in the 1800s or whatever, where it became memorial. What, and where it's more like, you know, Puritan and, and Calvin, if you had to like, what's the one liner, you know, like for, for like the wife who doesn't read theology, you know, she just knows the, the, the Bible a little bit. She's like, all right, I'm about to take the Lord's supper or whatever it might be called in her mind. What was she thinking when that was happening? What did she think was she was doing or was going to happen or was promised to her or she should expect yeah the 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 hope was that you would experience both intellectually but also heartwise the presence of Christ at the table okay so it's it was so and then you're sort of maintaining that this was what the original baptists yes maintained. oh without a shadow of a doubt and this is what you're maintaining like is the is what it is and so I want personally, I want to experience and I'm, I think, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm a memorialist, but um, so many people I love and I read, they're like the more memorials, you guys are whack. So that's why I want to see what people are seeing. And your book was very helpful there. And we'll get into it. But just as a side note, real quick, just super applicable, when you go like to the table, what what are you, are you sort of, what are you actually thinking and what ends up happening, if anything? And if it doesn't, if, if nothing happens, as it were, what are some things that you, uh, truths that you remind yourself or? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, when I come to the table, I, I frequently um, begin to, I mean, uh, having spent eight years in an Anglican setting with regular participation uh uh, of the in the lord's table through the book of common prayer some of those prayers for the communion service i know fairly well mm. so i will i will start to recite those prayers in my own mind um mm. because i find that generally the prayers i hear at the table are lackluster and mm. don't, this is one of the, again one of the reasons why i think um it, it really is a shame that during the formate formative years of the baptist tradition which i love um, the Anglican Church weaponized the Book of Common Prayer um, as a vehicle of political repression, mm. arguing that if you didn't use the Book of Common Prayer as a vehicle for worship, then and only that, then they would imprison you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And so ba our Baptist forebears were imprisoned and persecuted by the Anglican State Church mm -hmm. uh, in a, in conjunction with the state authorities. But the result of that, and they use the Book of Common Prayer as a vehicle, as a test. But the result of that is that our Baptist forebears rejected the use of liturgical prayers. Right. And right. so uh, 
in, in certain generations, particularly generations of revival, the praying extemporaneous prayer can be rich. <laughs> but both you and I know, <laughs> if you've listened to a lot of uh, deacons pray at the table, I mean, I've sometimes heard heresy. Right. I know. Uh, I've heard the father being thanked for dying for us and you know, <laughs> on and on. So um so I will I will start to recite to myself some of those prayers. And my hope is that uh coming with faith, that the prayers become a vehicle. They they don't guarantee anything. I mean, I'm I'm not no. uh, I don't have any sort of okay, say these these mm-hmm. words and auto, something automatically happens, but that I will have again, a fresh realization of the presence of Christ. Um, hearing him say that my sins are forgiven. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of verse that has to, I, that is my hope at the table, mm-hmm. but also um, uh, at the table is a place of recommitment for me. So normally after the table, we normally have the table in our church at the end of the service. You know, everybody gets up and leaves. I'll normally take 10 to 15 minutes. Mm. And my wife's learned to, okay, he's going to pray now. Mm. And I just, just to recommit myself to God's people, to recommit myself to Christ. Mm. Um, I mean, the whole, the whole way we do the table is, is problematic for me. It's rushed. Um, we don't. Well, you know, we'll, we'll say, well, well, let's have a time of, of silent prayer. And then you've got this organ playing in the background. It's <laughs> it's typical of our culture, right? You go, you, get, you can't go to shopping in a store. There's music there. <laughs> like, well, why do I need that music? I, I'm at a restaurant and I'm listening to country and Western or whatever. <laughs> sure, I like, you know, Alison Krauss in her place, but I don't necessarily need it when I'm eating my dinner. But Alison Krauss is good. She has an angel voice, right? Oh, I love, yeah, I love Krauss and uh, Union Union Station and yeah, her yeah, work. Yeah. Um, but um, it it's just part of our you know our culture, the noise and the the lack of silence in our culture. And the table can be a place where we can do silent recollection. Yes, remembering, but also uh, re- realizing He is here. The mm. risen Christ stands among us. So we've got, you're saying like, they were saying, you know, that, that cheeky response is the Lord's supper, not the Lord's, you know, breakfast. What about it's the Lord's supper, not the Lord's snack. And it seems to be in the earliest days in the context of an actual meal. You know, that's why we hear people are getting hammered drunk because it sounds like there's a, you know, enough glasses of wine to go around and perhaps they sent a single cup around. But um, I'm not even, I almost didn't even want to go here with you, but I'm just curious if you have any uh, flyby thoughts on that. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so in the in the earliest church, it obviously flows out of the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christ, you know, uh, uses the occasion of the Passover meal to establish the lineaments uh, of the new covenant. This is the, my new, co- this is the new covenant in my blood. Um and the passage you refer to is, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, where obviously there is a meal attached to it. And the other passage that links that is in Jude. Um, and then we obviously know from other early Christian literature, like the Didache, uh, etc., that there was sometimes a meal associated with the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. But what Paul does in that passage is he separates 
the Lord's Supper from the meal. Mm -hmm. He actually does that. And his, his uh, authority to do that is Jesus. Because Jesus, you know, there are four, uh, four or five cups. I forget the exact number. I think there are four cups of wine that are drunk at the Passover. And Jesus identifies one of them. Not all four or five, yeah. one of them. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think the scholars who studied the liturgy of the time argue, I think it's the third cup. And mm. I, I don't know the details of what that exactly represents. Sure, sure. But Jesus himself identifies the breaking of bread right at the beginning and the cup. Those two items are the essence of the representation mm. of the new covenant. What so about even he, he himself doesn't, endorse the entire passover meal he right. just endorses two elements of it mm -hmm. what about and then paul if, reinforces that what about if it's done in the so we could at least say well it was done in the context of a meal because i think somewhere else like i think i think it was jesus in the upper room saying like oh the next time we eat this feast together you know in and it's supposed to be like a, a sort of a picture of what's to happen like when you're partying with the crew you're having like family dinner. This is your church family or whatever. So it's my last random question about the Lord's supper, not the Lord's snack should maybe at least be in the context of like the church brunch with, with all the old ladies bringing their mashed potatoes and like jello or what? And then man, pastor busts out like the one cup <laughs> and said, that's not the Lord's supper, but that is a supper. And that is the context of which we take this celebrating together, but this is it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do have the, the Methodist tradition and the early Methodists in the 1740s and onwards would have the, um, the um, love feast mm -hmm. in which they would have the table uh, embedded in or after an actual meal. Mm -hmm. um, so I personally wouldn't be opposed to that, but I don't think that that is a necessity. Right. By the very fact that Jesus himself doesn't endorse the entire meal, but identifies the third cup and the breaking of bread at the beginning. And then Paul and Paul himself builds on that. You know, you've, you've got homes to eat in. You eat in your home. But when you come together, in other words, he he actually endorses a separation of the of the meal and the, the Lord's Supper, as we call it. So um, I don't think I don't think our tradition which is goes all the way back second century. I mean, if you read just a martyr in his first apology on the, the Lord's table, it's not, it, he doesn't, there's no indication it's based on a meal there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it, the separation of the, of the agape, the love feast from the Lord's supper is very, very, very early. And I think it has, I think it goes back to first Corinthians and also goes back to um, Jesus's words and yeah. the institution of the table. But that doesn't mean that if you if you want to celebrate with a meal, fine. But right. I think there needs to be a clear transition. Uh, yeah. if you are doing that. OK, here we're having food together. This will then need lead naturally into the breaking of bread in the table. Yeah. Yeah. At least functionally, it probably be probably would be really good to do it in that context, because you know, they say Jesus ate and drank his way through the New Testament. And there's just something about when we when we sup together. OK, um, back to a little bit of history action here in the book. How does John Bunyan play a role in this discussion? 
Well, Bunyan is uh, Bunyan's very curious. I mean, there's been long debates about whether he's, he was a Baptist or not, uh, partly because he argues from a very, very um, there. there he, he basically has a minority view in the 17th and 18th century, which is uh, the revolves around the question of the relationship between the baptism and the Lord's table. And Bunyan, well, the majority of Baptists in this period, and by majority, I mean 90% or more, would argue that um, in a local church, uh, who can regularly, and I, I stress the word regularly, regularly participate in the celebration of the table. And their argument will be those who are baptized believers, baptized by immersion uh, in the name of the triune God on the basis of faith in Christ. That, that that is the basis for participation in the table. Um, obviously, this has caused a lot of controversy. It was the most controversial issue in Baptist circles, probably from the 1700s, 1600s down to the 1800s. And Bunyan argues, though, um, no, no, anybody who's a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ is welcome to the table. But in and in fact, Bunyan would go one step further and argue that um, anybody who is a believer in Christ is welcome to membership. He doesn't. He didn't even require believers' baptism as membership. Hmm. So this gets him into a lot of controversy, and to some degree, Bunyan's reaction to that controversy is to downplay the ordinances or sacraments hmm. to the point that at times I get the feeling, if you're reading Bunyan on these matters, that he's almost like a Quaker. Hmm. In other words, he rejects the sacraments or the ordinances as being of any value at all. He actually has a little child's poem in which he uh, kind of uh, gives that uh, impression. Um, it is interesting, if you go through the uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there is nothing in Pilgrim's Progress that corresponds to baptism. That's a good point. <laughs> nothing. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. You know, and as a side note, I was surprised that, you know, you just threw this out on, on the side, but you essentially said... Um, that at the time of Bunyan's life, he wasn't that big of a deal. No. He said something like, I had no idea. I just always assumed, oh, this is like the Pilgrim Progress guy. Everyone knows this guy. <laughs> I well, was yeah, he, he was big. He was big in the sense that his Pilgrim's Progress went through a multiple number of editions before his death in 1688. Mm -hmm. But he was not influential in Baptist circles at all. Wow. It's not until the 19th century when you get Baptists who are concerned about developing their history the emergence of landmarkism, which I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, Baptists go all the way back to John the Baptist, okay. that Bunyan suddenly now, we, he's ours. He's one of us. And yeah. Bunyan becomes a, a leading Baptist figure. But in, in, in his own day, he played a very minimal role in the development of Baptist life. Huh, huh. Okay. Can you also in the book, you sort of, you, you, you um, engage with the confessions how do they play into this conversation of the history and the uh, the the evolution or de-evolution of the supper and baptism Baptists? Well, I think the confessions, there's two major confessions. The first London Baptist confession published initially in 1644. It went through a number of editions, came out in 1646 in a second edition. And that lays out the lineaments of this kind of uh, communion is for those who are being baptized as believers. Then there is a later confession called, the, it's sometimes called the 1689 Confession, uh, which is a bit of a misnomer because it was uh, ratified in 1689, but it had been first published in 1677 and then republished in 1688. 
And then in 1689, a general assembly of Baptists, um, the first time they'd ever had the freedom to do this because of uh, legal, um, pers well, it was persecution between 1660 and 1688. And then in 1688, the Act of Toleration allowed Baptists to gather freely. And so they gather in London, 120 churches and representatives. And one of the things that they affirm is what we call the 1689 Confession. Or the Second London Confession is the way I normally call it. Mm -hmm. And in the Second London Confession, it's important because what they do is they take the Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian Statement from 1646, and they basically use it as a basis for their confession of faith, uh, changing it, you know, obviously on things like uh, congregational polity, uh, believers baptism and so on. But the statement on the Lord's Supper, what does the Lord's Supper mean, is taken virtually word for word from wow. the Presbyterian document. Wow. And so it's important because it reminds us that the 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 pure the the men who framed this confession, which is the most important Baptist confession in Baptist history. Mm -hmm. Um let me just take a side uh <laughs> trip on that. Um the 1689 confession is the foundational confession for the Philadelphia Association founded in 1707. And the Philadelphia Association is the oldest Baptist association in America. Um, it comes known as the Philadelphia Confession. The first Baptist church in the South, which is First Baptist in Charleston, founded in the 1680s, um, it'll establish, it'll take the, the Philadelphia Confession in the 1700s as its confession. It becomes known as the Charleston Confession. And it is the confession for Baptists in the South all the way through to the 19th century until mm. the New Hampshire Confession starts to be used. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, uh, I teach at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and our confession of faith is the abstract of principles. And that basically is, this, is the Charleston Confession, the 69 Confession, mm -hmm. um, basically abstracted in 50 right. statements. Uh, Basil Manley Jr., when he was given the task of by James Pettigrew Boyce to draw up the Confession of Faith for the New School in 1858, basically took the, the Charleston Confession. He had grown up a First Baptist. In other words, he takes a document from the 1680s and he abstracts it. He, he summarizes mm -hmm. it in mm -hmm. about 20 little statements. Mm -hmm. So this is a very influential, very influential statement. And it demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that when it comes to the Lord's table, uh, the earliest Baptists were, were completely committed to a Puritan understanding of the table. Mm -hmm. And so they so, can say that at the table, we spiritually feed upon Christ crucified, not corporally, not carnally, that is physically, but we spiritually feed on him. And that language, that realistic language, bespeaks something more than a memorial view. Right, right. So we were to say, one option is one, one view is that we spiritually feed on him. And another view is that we simply um, remember what happened. So if we were, if we are spiritually feeding on him in, in what way, you know, I mean, this is the, uh, you know, this is like um, the enlightenment asking these questions, right. But in what way am I feeding on him? Right. You know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, like, yeah. Like, I, want, I want to spiritually fit. I'm often very spiritually hungry, but I don't know. Like, OK, we just took the Lord's Supper yesterday and I went up and I'm like, uh, OK, Lord. Uh, here we go. 
And then I, I took the, the, the wine. I said, thank you for shedding your blood, Lord. Amen. And that was it for me. But I, <laughs> I'd like to have it be a little more meaningful, but I, I don't know. I guess I'm a, like a, um, a biblicist in that sense. Cause if you were to, I think if you're just, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'll, I'll get ahead to sort of the biblicist approach, but, but yeah, yes. Sorry. Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> so the, the 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 whole idea of feeding is the realization that Christ is among us, giving us spiritual strength and grace and comfort and encouragement through His Spirit. And how does that happen? Well, it's a mystery of faith. Hmm. And uh, if you read Calvin on the table, uh, Calvin is not prepared. He he talks about it. You know how is it that the Spirit connects us to Christ? Well, obviously, the spirit is one in, one in being with the with the son. Um, but beyond that, I mean, he, he's quite prepared to leave it in the realm of mystery. Yeah. But you yeah. get the enlightenment. No, no, I, I want to. Well, if this if, if you can't tell me exactly how this works out, we're just going to go with memorial. Right, right, right. And so what we've done is we have we have become we've 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 rationalized our faith. Mm. We, we've become apostles of reason, whereas the uh, the New Testament is quite prepared to leave a number of things in the realm of mystery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not the mystery the way the word is used in the New Testament in terms of something that's been revealed, but in the way that we often use it today, that th this is something we just don't understand. Mm. And uh, But it, nonetheless, it is true. The, our souls are nourished by the indwelling spirit, who is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, Christ himself is nourishing our souls. And the table is a high point, should be a high point, in which we receive spiritual comfort, strength, encouragement, nourishment. So comfort, strength, encouragement, these are some of the fruits of these, um, you know, spiritually feeding on Christ. So does that sort of always happen? Like no, if I no. come in that mindset, like basically I'm saying to you, Hey, I'm a memorialist, but I'd like, I would like to have more, but, um, I don't, I don't know what to frame it in. I don't know what my expectation should be. It's all right. If I don't, can't even explain it, but like, what's a filter or a grid or a path or something that I lock in my mind and say, this is what's happening, or this is expectations or, and, and, and it, Yeah. Yeah, I think some of it is, you know, I come away from the table, I'm a Christian, and I'm saved. Mm. Uh, an assurance of salvation. My sins, all of them are forgiven. Um, I've been totally reconciled with God as Father. He is my Father. Um, uh, Jesus' death was for me. Um, yes, I'm a sinner, but now I'm in Christ. and. Uh, the table is, at the best of times, the table is a foretaste of heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But couldn't a memorialist say all of those things? Uh, I think probably to some degree. Um, I, I, yeah, this is a longstanding discussion I've had with those who are very strongly committed to memorial view only. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think in certain circles, there is a rich, um, for lack of a better word, a Eucharistic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, particularly the brethren, the Plymouth brethren, um, the breaking of bread service that transpires in traditional brethren circles 
before the preaching service, one which they're giving up by droves now. A lot of brethren communities, well, they've changed their name, you know, their community churches, and they've given up the idea of the breaking of bread ceremony. But that in that tradition, I've been in a breaking of bread service, and I, I'm pretty certain probably it was a memorial only in terms of the thinking, but man, it was rich. Wow. Wow. So okay. I think that there are traditions in which there is an emphasis theologically, this is a memorial view, but nonetheless, they realize, I mean, the critical thing is not so much what I hold to be what's happening at the table, but what does happen at the table. What do I come away from it? Hmm. And if I come away from it, if I'm a memorialist, and I come away with a rich sense of forgiveness of sins and a spiritual strength and a recommitment to Christ, then the table has done it's achieved its purpose. Wow. Okay. I, I like that. I could say amen to all those, except for, I don't know if I ever go away with spiritual strength, you know, or renewed vigor, basically like that, that real experiential part, um, which I desire. I, and I, I don't know. Well, maybe I can't separate it from the entire service itself. You know what I mean? But anyways, I want to keep. I think there has to be. I think there has to be an expectation that you will meet God at the table. I mean, I, to some degree, and I'm not trying to make this anthropocentric, but I mean, I, I know Spurgeon said once he asked a man who was complaining that his preaching never won souls like Spurgeon's did. And Spurgeon simply asked him, when you get up into the pulpit to preach, do you expect that men will be converted and men and women will be converted under your preaching? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you shouldn't be surprised that none are. Yeah, that actually makes sense. No, that makes sense. My, hey, my dad just moved and he went to, um, I found a, a church out there for him where he moved. And it's a good church, so you got to go. And he went and he, <laughs> well, how was church? He's all, it was pretty cool. But, you know, they didn't, they didn't have like the, um, the altar call where people weren't able to raise their hand and go up front and give their lives to the Lord. I'm like, oh, dad, wow. And then, um, but I, I specifically know that that church focuses on the Lord's Supper. And I'm like, well, dad, he's, I'm like, why do you think that's important? He's like, well, people need to like, let the world know. And I'm like, well, isn't that like what baptism in the Lord's Supper is? But it's so, and the 18th century, like you were saying, just brought us a lot of problems everywhere. And that's why I'm assuming sort of my my scant memorials view is probably off because all the other things around that same time that got skewed are like like the um i'm not saying it's wrong to share the gospel but like the the, the great commission right like this was ne before um what was her name i just read this study but like before about the 18th century that text was you know go and make disciples was never necessarily used as like a go out and do mass event evangelization based upon this, you know, there were other texts, but and like you said, I think you, what you, what you said was huge, something to the effect of the Baptist sort of became, um, was it like evangelistic more, uh, trying to get people saved? Is that like, would you say that that's sort of the summary of where everything shifted and, and is that the right language to use? Yeah. I mean, uh, in the late, 18th century, you start to get this emphasis on the church primarily as a place of evangelism. Yeah, yeah. And by the time you hit the, and that, that comes out of a context of revival, and it's a genuine mm -hmm. revival. Mm -hmm. But the downside of it is that by the mid 19th century, that is all that the church is. And the, the ordinance, particularly of the Lord's table, is not an evangelistic ordinance. 
And so it gets downplayed. So one right. of the great, one yeah. of the great preachers of the 19th century, Alexander McLaren, who had a church as large as Spurgeon's in Manchester, 6,000 people. Um, I mean, he, sa he said at one point, um, you know, people complained about his Lord's Supper once a month, you know, took about 15 minutes. Uh, and um, he, people complained about the way they rushed through it. And he said, well, the reality is it's not that important. <laughs> and he was um for him the church was primarily a place of of evangelism yeah. and um that's that's basically shaped the way we think of church yeah. at least have thought about church for much of the 20th century mm -hmm. um etc and uh in that context the the ordinance of 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 uh, and that's why the altar call the altar call becomes so 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 important so important i got my dad telling me that's like part of the confession of faith man we got to get that altar call okay so it, go, going back before the 18th century and i'm i was struck by what you said about the the heretical prayers that are coming out these days <laughs> you know i probably prayed some of those before the supper and um i think i was i was just reading i'm pretty sure it was abraham kuyper on this thing he and he's He's maintaining, you know, he's got a view on everything, but he's saying there shouldn't even be like it, he doesn't want any talking. He doesn't really want any prayers necessarily. He just wants just the biblical text, you know, and I, I don't think he's a remembrance guy. And I just thought that was funny. At least you'll get no heresy, but I don't feel like it's going to scratch the itch um, like I would get if I had some liturgical prayers. OK, question about just Baptists in general, because you're like a Baptist pillar and I, I'm a Baptist, right? But I'm mainly in this camp of like, uh, I really glean from the neo-Calvinists, you know, Kuiper and Bob Inc and all these guys. So the Dutch and I'm just, um, so I'm also an Angels fan, baseball team, the Angels in Anaheim. I think they became a team in like 1961, but all my friends are into the Dodgers and they've been a team since like 1861. There's so much cooler and older and like, I'm like, oh, it's my wife is a Dodgers fan. She makes fun of me. And I was thinking the other day, I feel like as a Baptist, I'm like the angels. And I feel like the Presbyterians are like the Dodgers. And I hate it, but I'm still a committed Angels fan. I can't help it. I love it. I don't know. Do you, uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> Have you ever yeah, thought that's, I'm not a baseball fan. And so, I mean, my game is cricket. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I grew up in England, so I, and I, I mean, I love soccer, whatever, but I, that's a very, that is a very apt illustration. You know, you got these relative newbies and then there's, <laughs> this, this, this team with a long distinguished history and they just seem so much cooler to identify. With. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the problem for uh, men and women who begin to re read, you know, the reformed mm -hmm. literature and yeah, we right. begin to read because so much of it has been reprinted by, you know, Banner Truth is a, basically a Presbyterian publishing house. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of the publishers have reprinted the Banner Truth, sorry, Presbyterian or Congregationalist literature. And mm. the Baptists just kind of fall by the wayside. And I remember back in, I don't remember reading this then, but later, uh, Paul Helm, very distinguished uh, professor of uh, philosophy, Baptist, Baptist Calvinistic, defending the Banner Truth's decision to to, to, to basically publish only the Presbyterians primarily, 
I mean, they do publish Spurgeon in that, but uh, he said, well, the Presbyterians always said it better. <laughs> and the result has been is we've been ignorant of some of our great heroes, uh, men like William Kiffin, Hansard Knowles, mm. uh, John Gill. I mean, Gill gets written off as a hyper-Calvinist, and he's he's rich, really rich. Wow. Um, I just came out with um, a book uh, uh, called uh, Bespangled with Divine Grace, The Spirituality of John Gill. Nice. And um, uh, it's basically 30 extracts of Gill's very rich Trinitarian-based spirituality. Uh, uh, Andrew Fuller, uh, I mean... There's just a remarkable group of Baptist leaders that we have just ignored. And um, are do you is there anyone you could suggest? Like I said, I really like Kuiper, um, you know, Klaus Skilder, like these people who are sort of um, engaging with culture, if you will. No, no, no. Let's not say that, but more just like um, not as much as the sacred secular divide thing. You know? What yeah, I mean? I mean, I think you. I think who, you who find do we that have out there, there on our side? <laughs> I think you find that in Andrew Fuller. Real, that's okay. Yeah, that's I mean, a, Fuller's engagement with some of the major movements of his day forced him to think about cultural issues mm -hmm. uh, to some degree. Now, Fuller's not, you know, um, you know, he's not a class gilder or Bavink, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, or Kuiper. Um, but I think he avoids some of their problems too. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with Bavink, but Kuiper's got some issues. Um, <laughs> yeah, he does. I anyway, I I think we've 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 got a very rich tradition that we just haven't uh, you know pulled from, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean the Presbyterians only go back to you know the Reformation, yeah, and Baptists are only a few you know you if you if you if you think about the emergence of Presbyterianism as a movement say the 1560s, you know by the 16 teens through the 1640s. You've got Baptists. So within a hundred years, you've got a very rich Baptist tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a half a dozen Baptist churches in the British Isles that uh, go back uh, nearly 400 years. Mm -hmm. Founded in the 1640s. There's a church I'm very familiar with, uh, Cork Baptist Church in McCurtain Street, uh, was founded in the late 1640s, 1649. Oh, nice. So it's uh, 380 years. Wow. So it's more like, uh, the Baptists aren't the angels. They're more like maybe, you know, the Atlanta Braves, who I think before that were some other baseball teams. So they're not they're not quite as uh, dodgy. No, they're not quite as the newbies as we we tend to think. Yeah. And I think I think I think uh, Baptists. Uh, one of the glories of the Baptist tradition has been this: is that it has made room for men and women who have not had the advantage of a university education. Hmm. to be used by God in the, in the life of the church. Oh. Presbyterianism has basically focused on a um, university trained ministry, yeah. a learned ministry, which I don't, I don't dispute. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an academic. I've spent my whole world life in this world, but there has always been in the Baptist tradition, a room for a man like Bunyan or John Gill or yeah. Carey, or Spurgeon, men who basically finished their formal education at the age of 12 to 16, and yet mm. God used them greatly. Right, it's right. very rare to find men like that in the Presbyterian world. Well, that's so true. I think I heard someone ridiculing me once. They're like, our, uh, it was an OPC guy. He's like, he's all, our like children's group are more educated than, you know, than, than many of your deacons, and they, they read Latin. I'm like, oh, whatever, get me out of here. Okay, last two for you. Um, <clears throat> the the first one is 
as we close out, like if you're talking with your wife or your daughter, or I don't, you know, granddaughter, I don't know how old you are or whatever, but, and, and they're saying, sweetheart, dad, grandpa, what, what is this Lord's supper thing all about? Like, can you help me? Can you help me just get my, get my brain around it? And I'm all right with having mystery, but I, I want, I want to get from it what the Lord would have me get from it. And then after that, if you could just mention any, any books that you have coming out. I know you had just mentioned the gill or just highlight anything for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I want to, depending on obviously who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to my wife, it's going to be quite different from my granddaughter. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a granddaughter, but if I did have a granddaughter, you know, uh, unless she was in her teens, then it would be much, along a much simpler line. Mm -hmm. um, I think I want to emphasize that the Lord's table is a place where we remember the tremendous sacrifice that was prompted by divine mm -hmm. love um, for, um, for our sins. Um, and then second, uh, that the, the, the Lord's table is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is like a spiritual discipline. It is important. It should have an important place in my life, as important as prayer, reading the word, hearing the word, um, uh, etc. It, it's a place, it's, it's a thing that God has given to his people to help them persevere in the Christian life. So good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And then, okay, so you've got that forthcoming book or that recently. recently yeah, I've got this, uh, John Gill. Um, there is uh, two others that um, I might mention. Um, one is um, a book on pastoral friendship. Nice. Um, called uh, The Forgotten Peace to a Persevering Ministry. And then this more formal study of friendship called Iron Sharpens Iron. Nice. Uh, which also deals with uh, friendship as a, as a neglected spiritual discipline. Um, so, so good. Oh my gosh. It's not just a, thank you that theology and all this stuff. It's not just a hobby. It's, it's not, we're not playing games here. Right. So I appreciate no. that. Yeah. So we've no, no. Been, been speaking with Dr. Michael Haken, author of, Admits us our beloved stands recovering sacrament in the baptist tradition and that's from um the champs over at lexham press we'll link that book as as well as the ones you just showed there thank you so much for your time it's been really a really a good one happy happy labor day likewise thank you very much jason god bless we came for salvation we came for family we came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad.